You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. It's a long way to Tipperary. It's a long way to go. It's a long way to Tipperary. To the sweetest girl I know. Hello everyone and welcome to History of the Great War Premium Episode number 11. In his book, Trains to the Trenches, Andrew Rodin would say in his introduction that, quote, it's easy to forget that while the front lines were a war of bullets and shells, such material was moved most of the way to the front by rail. So that is where we are going to look at for the next two premium episodes. This episode will be solely focused on the design and development of the German and French railways, which excites me greatly because after the cavalry and tank episodes, I personally felt that the premium episodes were getting a bit too Anglo-centric, so it'll be nice to take a break from that. I think the reason that both the French and German railways were so important to the war is obvious, but they each had their own path from the beginning of the rail age early in the 19th century until the war started in 1914. For the French, their method of government and control posed some problems, when trying to get all the railroad companies working together. And this means that the government itself would spend most of the time trying to figure out how much control they could get over the companies without the companies getting too terribly angry. On the German side, the issues were very different, because many of the railroads were initially laid down and developed before 1870, and hence before unification. As Prussia tried to centralize and unify control of all these railways for both economic and military reasons, they ran into barriers that were not just private companies, but also the governments of some of the German states. Both of these problems for the French and Germans would not be entirely solved by the time the war started. However, they would be solved enough so that the railroads would be a great benefit to both countries in the opening weeks of the war, and then of course for the rest of it as well. Just as a programming note, we will actually be discussing the railways during the war next episode, and then we'll have a third episode that will be very different as we look at the Berlin to Baghdad Railroad project that was heavily heavily focused on by several governments before 1914, and makes for, for what I think is a pretty interesting geopolitical story that gives some insight into the world before the war. For the French, the century before the war is a story of trying to balance government intervention with various railway efforts. A good portion of the reasoning for this was the fact that the French economy had some problems producing enough capital to build a network in the first place, and this meant that the government had to be involved right from the beginning to help finance such a large endeavor. This would put the French squarely between the British, whose railways were very privatized, and the Germans, who had for the most part nationalized service in many German states. For the French, the actual operation of the railways were managed by private companies, and this would not change, even though some people tried. But they always had a bit of government supervision thrown on top, and how big that bit of government supervision was left a lot of room for arguments. The government, for its investment, wanted above all the ability to do four things with these railways, and two of them directly related to defense. The first was the ability to determine the routes that the railways took. This would allow the government to make sure that they had the proper tracks positioned to, say, defend the country's eastern border from a German attack that may or may not happen any day now. 
this was a very important function of the government because a specific as a specific area got more track there were quickly diminishing economic returns on making more and in some areas it did not make too much sense to have more than run one railway but maybe that area was very important as a military thoroughfare this would cause the government to put their finger on the scale a bit and they wanted new lines to be made so that finger usually came in the form of a very large check. The opposite of this was true as well. There were areas where the military specifically did not want the companies building a bunch of railroads, specifically ones that crossed the German border into France. This created conversations that were both on a macro scale, dealing with strategic ramifications about how dense a specific border region should have its railways, in which direction they should run, and also involved more detailed micro decisions. This could include things like which side of a river or a natural obstacle a company could build a new line on, or how many bridges that they could put over the river into Germany. Things like that, very small, very tactical regional things. All of these various arrangements and deals with the companies at the frontier, especially those in the east, but also in other regions, created a situation that was hard to balance and hard to keep both sides happy as time went on. The next ability that the government wanted was the ability to confiscate railway property when needed and at a moment's notice. The whole purpose around this ability would be to requisition everything in case of war and the need for mobilization. The third and fourth requirements seem less important to me, but were the ability to survey and lay roadbeds and the ability to design bridges and tunnels. I'm not sure specifically why they wanted these abilities. I didn't find concrete reasons in my research, but I'm sure they were there. These requirements did not prevent the normal operations of the companies, and they would still be in charge of actually buying the locomotives and the rolling stock and then they would have to deal with personnel aspects and maintaining normal service. All of these arrangements would be put into law on June 11, 1842, as a sort of an outline, but always with enough wiggle room that both sides felt they could interpret things how they needed to. One thing that the law did not do at this point, and something that would only come later, was lay down specific areas of control for the railway companies. With the amount of capital investment necessary to make all of this happen, the companies putting in all of this money wanted regional guaranteed monopolies so that they could guarantee return on investment. This type of arrangement with the government would happen, but it would take some time before the landscape settled down and some companies got big enough to start convincing the government that it was a, the right thing to do. When this was finally codified and the country was split up, one thing remained. All of the railways in France radiated from Paris. This was a conscious design choice, and even to this day, a lot of rail traffic in France radiates out of Paris. This arrangement was called the Le Grand Star, and it would be the centerpiece of early French railway planning. But none of these things happened overnight, and it took decades to even get what we have discussed so far hashed out. But one thing that became very clear was that it only really mattered if the French economy was good. I think it's easy to fall into the idea that, since the railways were obviously superior to any other method of transport at this period of history, they were always supported by the companies and the government. But this was not the case. It wasn't a nice straight road in, in terms of building. Economic downturns happened, and when they did, it hit the railways hard. And this is universally true. That's not just a French thing. 
For example, during 1847, in the year before Louis Bonaparte was elected president of France, France had a serious economic downturn. This resulted in an almost complete stoppage of all railway construction, and a huge round of consolidation of the railway companies, as the smaller ones found themselves unable to pay the bills. After this downturn, though, they they recovered, and so began the first big railway boom in France, and that happened between about 1848 and 1857. During this time, almost 14,000 kilometers of new track was laid down. This would be the first of two big boom times before the Franco-Prussian War, with the other coming between 1859 and the start of the war in 1870. After these two big building periods, though, there were still many areas of France that had little or no regular rail service due to local economic factors. This did not prevent the French from utilizing their rails in two instances prior to the war, with the movement of troops on their way to the Crimea in 1859 and to the southeastern border to participate in the Austro-Italia War. Both of these efforts were successful, but they did not really strain the system as much as what would happen in 1870 when the Prussians came a-knocking. The Franco-Prussian War, which we'll not cover in detail here, was of course devastating to the French railway companies, just like it was devastating to the country as a whole. By far the worst of it was the Eastern Railway Company, which had a high portion of the track mileage in the eastern part of the country, and suffered 38 million francs in lost revenue due to the war. After the war, they then found it very hard to recover, because a lot of that track mileage was in Alsace and Lorraine, which was now owned by Germany. This was not the only problem for the railways, though because the entire French economy hit another really rough patch after 1870, which they would not truly recover from for over two decades. During this time, the railway networks contracted, and industrial growth barely increased at all. While this was going on, the French government and military were trying to come to grips with why they had failed so horribly in 1870, and they tried to find a way to fix it. They knew that railways would play a big role, and an ever-increasing role in any conflict, especially with the Germans, and their ability to quickly mobilize troops to threaten areas was critical. So to try and figure out the answers to some of these questions, like how would they do this, when Charles de Franchine became war minister in 1888, he would spend a lot of time putting together the railway companies, government officials, and military leaders so that they could come to some agreement about what needed to happen and how it was going to happen when the time came, because everybody just assumed that there was going to be another war at some point. However, as Alan Mitchell mentions in his excellent work, The Great Train Race, uh, it's important to not just look at what happened in the 20 years before the war in France and Germany, with the railways and with everything else, as some long, inevitable road to 1914. Nobody planned on going to war in 1914 when decisions were made in 1900 or earlier. They never could have guessed that it would be the middle of the second decade of the next century when the next war started. And so as we look back, we should not fall into the trap of assuming that it was inevitable, and that the events that led up to it were because of the war, instead of just because that's just how they happened. 
With that said, the period between 1895 and 1914 would see the French government continuing to grapple with the massively growing industry that was the railway companies. We will talk about three of the problems right now. The first being the continued push to nationalize the railways. The second being the movement to get French companies to buy all of their goods from French manufacturers to try and help the domestic economy. And finally, the rivalry between the French railway companies, which would end up hurting all of them in France along the way. While I mentioned earlier that one of the defining characteristics of the French railway network was that it was not nationalized, that was not due to lack of trying. There were several serious movements to nationalize in the decades before the war, including on in 1895. This effort would take time to get rolling, only to then be called off so that it did not interfere with the 1900 Paris Exposition, which was a really big deal uh, back then. The effort would be restarted in 1903, and would continue with varying intensity until the war started, but would be ultimately unsuccessful. The second problem was the idea that the French railway companies should be required to buy their resources domestically. There were arguments both for and against the possibility of implementing this restriction. The arguments in favor focused mostly around how much it would help the manufacturers to have these huge orders for locomotives, for railway cars, and all the other stuff that it takes to run a railroad placed through them instead of through other countries, and by other countries I mean Germany. This was not all sunshine and happiness for the manufacturers, though, because it would also mean that they would have to buy their materials domestically, which would have really hurt the smaller manufacturing firms, as domestic resources were often much more costly than similar materials purchased in other countries, like, say, Germany. This all sort of became a moot point, though, because after another huge boom in construction and demand, by 1906, domestic manufacturers just had no hope of keeping up with demand. This caused even the companies that were most adamant about trying to buy from French firms to reach out to German companies to make up for domestic shortfall. To give you some idea of how lopsided the manufacturing was, in 1909, all of French manufacturing produced 450 locomotives while Germans made 1,500. This meant that when the war came, a lot of the locomotives pulling French trains were made across the border in one of the German states. The third problem was getting all of the companies to work together. This meant simple things like trying to get everybody on the same type of coupling mechanism for their freight cars, something that was absolutely critical during wartime, but was difficult to make them accept. It also included more abstract ideas, like doing what was best for France instead of for themselves. These companies were competing with each other, of course, and that caused some pretty unfortunate side effects. For example, there were two main tunnels that passed through the Alps at this time, the Mount Cenis Tunnel into France and the St. Gothard Tunnel, which connected Italy with Germany via Switzerland. In one year, six million francs worth went through the Gothard Tunnel, while well, only 1.8 million went through Sini. Now, there were many reasons for this large discrepancy, which would be an episode in and of itself to properly examine. However, one specific thing that was happening is that northern French railway companies were not using the eastern French railway companies. Instead, they were having their freight shipped from Italy, up the Gothard Tunnel, and through Germany, and then they would bring it down through Belgium and Holland, and then into France. 
This completely cut the other French companies out of the transportation loop, and instead gave all of that transportation money over to German companies for one very good reason. They were cheaper. This was a problem for the French government, who just wanted as much money flowing to the companies and economy as possible so that they could build more tracks that could be used in an emergency. They began serious planning for such an emergency around 1888, when the first really good comprehensive plan was hashed out between the government, the military, and the railway companies. I, I mentioned the start of this effort before. This plan would be elaborated on over the years, as the equation of forces and technologies and plans and timelines constantly shifted, but the basis would remain the same. It would be broken into four phases. The first was the initial movement of some number of defensive troops to defend the border. This was number one priority, so as to slow down any invasion. The second would be the concentration of the main mass of the French army at various points within France. The third was the transport of these groups of men from their concentration areas to the frontier for action. And the final phase was then supporting these troops once the fighting started and until it ended. One of the interesting problems with all of this that I never considered was how the railway companies and the armies worked together. Often army corps was one of the main units for mobilization. But these were large units, and often they, they were stationed in a wide area. It would require multiple companies to work together to get them to the front together. This created big logistical problems that required intricate planning to overcome. This also meant constantly updating the plans, and also the understanding between the companies, the government, and the military. And both of these would be updated many times between 1903 and 1914, up to five or maybe even more. At the end of the day, though, Alan Mitchell would make it clear that the French army could count on the trains, even if their arrangements weren't perfect, even if they didn't have the perfect set of lines to move forward. They could count on them to do their job. He would say, quote, There were a lot of problems with the situation in 1914, but Joffre could be certain that French army corps would move along double-track rail corridors to the front, that the private companies would cooperate with their transportation, and that specially constructed long platforms at stations throughout the northeastern sector would facilitate their debarkation. End quote. We now switch gears over to Germany, which had its own set of unique problems during the 19th century when trying to get its railroads sorted out at the national level. The biggest problem, of course, being that there was no national level, at least at the beginning. Each of the smaller German states started their railways in their own way before unification. For example, Bavaria and Saxony treated railways like postal services, highly regulated and government-controlled. On the flip side of that was Prussia, where in the beginning there was very little government involvement, and instead a bunch of small private companies sprung up at the beginning of the railway age. There was also not any sets of standardized regulations between the states, so they had different standards for many things, including, most importantly, track gauge. This meant that for quite some time, Baden, which ha had a different and wider track gauge than the rest of Germany, which just sounds absurd, but that's how it was. All of this created a system that was a bit crazy, and so the German states all came together in 1847, and created the Association of German Railway Administration. This was not any kind of governing body with real power, 
but instead just an attempt by everybody to figure out some solutions to the problems that were affecting all of them. And so the the decisions of this group were seen more as guidelines instead of actual rules. Trying to wrangle all the various groups in Germany together would be a problem for Germany even after unification. However, the biggest roadblocks would be the governments instead of private companies like in France. Even with all of these problems, though, there was no denying that the German railway system was very robust. In the 1840s, Germany went from 500 kilometers of track to 6,000. All of this construction then demanded locomotives and railway cars and all the other stuff, which created a boom for the German economy as they found themselves the European leader in the construction of all these goods. They also managed to quickly start working with other countries, the most important of which would be Italy and Switzerland, for the creation of a railway through the Alps. This was a huge step for Northern Europe and Italy, and it would be a huge economic benefit for both sides, although it would be costly to make happen. Another benefit that the Prussians specifically had over the French was that they had the 1866 Austro-Prussian War, which let them find out how woefully unprepared to utilize their rail network they were in case of a military emergency. The French never really had something on this scale, and it would completely change the way of thinking in the German leadership. Afterwards, Moltke the Elder set up a central committee that contained both civilian and military officials with the explicit goal of making sure that when the next military emergency happened, there would be perfect coordination between everybody. This would greatly assist the Prussians in 1870, because it allowed the Prussian military to solve some of the really easy problems before the Franco-Prussian War. An example of this was making sure that everything was aligned so that the troops could travel all the way across the country without ever having to get off a train. This sounds simple, but it's something that did not exist before 1866, and by 1870, these and other arrangements would cut the time to transport troops to the French frontier from 24 to 18 days, a week, a full week, just by small, easy changes that just required some planning. After the Franco-Prussian War, while Germany would eventually become known as their, for their nationalized service, it would not happen instantly at unification. The effort was started but not completed by Bismarck, and he had his work cut out for him. The problem was twofold. The first that had to be tackled before the other was that the private companies in Prussia, it was only after the largely Prussian-run government took care of its own railways that it could start trying to get control of the rest. The only real option available was the straight-up purchase of all the Prussian companies by the government, and eventually the government had to hand over 1.4 billion marks to 13 different companies to make this happen. After this, the government had control over a vast swath of railways that encompassed all of northern Germany, because remember at this point that Prussia contained most of the land in all of northern Germany, which was much more land than modern northern Germany because of Prussia. This meant that they started to try and make the next big step of working to get control of the other German states. The way it ended up working out was that the government, based in Berlin, would pay for most of the expense of any railways in these states that were thought to be primarily of military use. And by most of the cost, I mean they basically played for 95% of a lot of the construction cost. This seems like a huge investment for the government, and it was. 
but it was all made possible by the fact that after 1871, the government econo- the German economy was awesome. Germany was quickly catching up with the British to challenge for Europe's number one economy. And this allowed them to spend some of that money that was flowing around everywhere on the railways. And it allowed them to quintuple their mileage amount between 1870 and 1890. While some of the expansion came from private companies, most of it came from Berlin. Not all of the developments were strictly military-related, and there would always be a reasonable number of strictly economic projects, like the St. Gothard Tunnel, as we discussed earlier. This was also the time that German war plans became ever more tightly linked to the railways and their developments, with Moltke the Elder saying in 1879 that, quote, Railways have become, in our time, one of the most essential instruments for the conduct of war. The transport of large bodies of troops to a given point in an extremely complicated and comprehensive is a comprehensive piece of work, to which continuous attention must be paid. Every fresh railway junction makes difference. While although we may not want to u- make use of every railway that line that is constructed, we may still want to make use of the whole of the rolling stock that is available. Even with all of the economic booming during this time, still the German government was having problems getting all of the state railways together. By 1900, they were making some real progress, but very slowly, and only in some areas. For example, Württemberg was the first of the German southern states to join the railways with the Prussian system, and that was mostly because their system was by far the weakest. Some might call it garbage. And this even caused some consternation in Prussia, because the government had just spent a ton of money on their railways, and now they were asked to absorb this other crappy system that they would also have to spend money on improving. All of this would cut deeply into the profits that were being made at this point. While Württemberg did come into the system, there were two big holdouts that were very adamant about keeping their independence, and that was Saxony and Bavaria. They were even hesitant to join the German Railway Union after it was created, and it was only created to try and increase the standardization of the various systems, and in no way infringed upon their state autonomy. It would take three years for even the most basic of freight unions to be worked out between the German states, simply because nobody wanted to agree on everything. Sure, they all saw the benefits of these agreements, they all saw the problems that they were trying to solve, but they all wanted to solve them in their own way, not in somebody else's way. While some agreements would come into place before the war, it would still not be a perfectly nationalized system that is often associated with Germany. Bavaria and Saxony would both still have their own independent railways, with Bavaria even having their own army, along with a few other smaller states which also maintained uh, their railway autonomy. However, they had at least gotten everybody to agree on enough things that when the war came, everybody could be counted upon to play their part in the grand German mobilization plan. Overall, I hope you have come out of this episode with some insight into the complexity of the situation in both countries, of the fact that both were dealing with this massive economic infrastructure project in ways that were constrained by their society, their government, and their people. When the war started, Germany would have more railways, with 60,000 kilometers to the French 40,000. The Germans also had more capacity to manufacture locomotives and other things that kept the railways going. 
However, when the time came, the definitive fact was that while Germany was objectively more prepared when it came to the rails, the French were prepared enough. They were able to get their troops and their supplies where the military command wanted them to go in time to do what the military command wanted them to do. Now, they did not want them to do the right thing, but that's beside the point. So when it came down to it, the Germans had spent a lot more money to still not quite give them enough of an advantage to win a war. And then after the war, everything was changed, so much that the story would be entirely different. But that's a story for a different day. Thank you for listening, thank you for support, and I hope you will join me next premium episode as we look at railways during the war.